Well, let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, and we'll be looking at verses 9 to 13 this morning of Romans chapter 12. And in this chapter, Paul is talking about what a Christian's life ought to look like. In the early chapters of Romans, verse, uh, chapters 1 through 11, he focused mainly on sort of the theology of Christianity, what Christians believe, what we believe about God, what we believe about Christ, what we believe about sin and our need of salvation, what we believe about what Jesus accomplished on the cross uh, by his death and also through his resurrection. We talked about the, uh, Paul talked about the assurance that we have of salvation through Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit, those things and, and many, many more. But then in chapter 12, he transitions to talk about the way we now ought to live in light of the mercy and grace that God has shown us through Christ. So Christianity is both about things that we believe and things that we do. We believe certain things and we are called to live a certain way. You can't be a Christian, for example, without believing and confessing that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus died on the cross, that Jesus rose from the dead. But neither can you be a Christian and hate your brother. 1 John 3 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. Both what Christians believe and how Christians live are often lost, though, in the way that people talk about Christianity in our culture. The way that people in the sort of the mainstream culture talk about Christians often misses the heart of what Christians believe and what Christians do. When Christianity is brought into the cultural conversation, right, it's often having to do with controversial moral issues, at least issues that are controversial in our culture. Issues that have become political dividing lines like abortion or marriage. Those are important moral issues, and Christians believe the Bible speaks very clearly to those issues. But we do not gather weekly, mainly, to affirm the sanctity of human life or uh, the creation of marriage by God as an institution between one man and one woman. We do affirm those things. We stand upon those things. But they are not the main reason why we are here This morning, we gather weekly mainly to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, the Son of God who was sent by the Father to take on flesh, bear our sins on the cross, die our death, and rise for our salvation. We gather weekly mainly to remember that we and the whole world are under His authority because He is even now seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning over all. 
We gather weekly mainly to remind ourselves that we are anticipating the return of Christ, the day when He will come for His church and come to judge the living and the dead. And we gather weekly to be reminded that we have been commissioned to go into the world and preach this gospel. But how many outside the church realize that that is the heart of what Christians believe? And how many inside the church have forgotten it? Similarly, when the way Christians live come up, comes up in the cultural conversation, it seems like it's most likely to reflect our supposed intolerance or bigotry or hypocrisy, the rigid rules that many people associate with Christianity. But Christians are to be known mainly by our love. We are to be joyful, we are to be patient, we are to be humble, generous, hospitable people. And though we openly confess that we often fall short of the standards that we seek to live up to and that God calls us to live up to, many miss or ignore the difference that individual Christians and the church collectively have made upon the world through their love, service, sacrifice, and generosity. Now, there's a certain sense in which we can't help how the culture views us Or talks about us. But there are a few things that we can do. First, we can remind ourselves of the beliefs and practices that Scripture makes clear are the heart of the Christian life. Second, we can seek to believe and practice those truths as faithfully as we can by the power of the Spirit. And third, when we have the opportunity through conversations or other forms of influence, we can do our best to make clear the things that define us. The things that Scripture puts the most emphasis upon. But we can only do that last one well if we're doing the first two already. If we know what Scripture insists is the most important part of how Christians are called to live and what things are the most important truths that Christians are called to believe. In our passage today in Romans 12, Paul presses upon us some basic foundational instructions about the Christian life. Saying that they're basic does not mean that they are necessarily easy to do. But they are basic in the sense that these are the expectations placed upon all Christians in all times, in all places. This is what the transformed life that Paul talks about in the beginning of chapter 12 offered as a living sacrifice to God ought to look like. So let's look together at these verses. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 to 13. How are we as Christians called to live. Paul says, Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. 
Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Now, it's no accident that Paul leads off that list with a call to love. Let love be genuine, he says. Of the Christian virtues, love is the chief. Faith, hope, and love abide these three, Paul says, but the greatest of these is love. It's also the chief virtue that Jesus emphasized for his disciples in John 13. He said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. John says in 1 John 3.18, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. That's what Paul is emphasizing here. That our love is to be genuine. It is to be real. It is to be authentic. And genuine love is not merely a matter of words. Genuine love is a matter of action. It's something that we do. It's something that we show. We can talk like we love fairly easily. We can act like we love But the Bible calls us to put our love into action. To do for others things that demonstrate the love of Christ. Christ showed His love for us by laying down His life for us on the cross. And we likewise are to show love for others by our sacrificial actions. So we are to love with sincerity, Paul says. And love includes hating certain things. If we've absorbed our culture's definition of love, it seems that love is not allowed to hate anything. But the Bible says otherwise. If we are to love people, there are certain things we're going to hate. Because there are certain things that hurt people, and we should hate things that hurt people if we love people. So Paul says in the second part of verse 9, abhor or hate, abhor is not a word we use it very often, but it just means to hate. Hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. There are things that are evil, that are harmful, that are destructive. And we should not be indifferent toward those things. We should not be neutral toward those things. We should hate those things. Some of the things that Christians vocally and passionately oppose, we oppose because we believe they are evil and destructive and harmful. That's why we hate them. Not because we're trying to be mean. Not because we're trying to dictate to other people how to live. But because we know that God has said certain things are evil and that evil brings corruption and destruction and death and we don't want that for anybody. Lust, pride, greed, hypocrisy, those are destructive things. They are harmful things. And Christians ought to hate them and oppose them. And on the other hand, we are to cling to those things that are good. God himself, of course, is the ultimate good. Jesus said, who is good but God alone? God is the only one who is truly and perfectly good. And yet the Bible also tells us that when God created the world, He said that it was good and very good. 
There are many good things in this world that Christians should love and celebrate and give thanks for and appreciate. Marriage and friendship and neighborliness and kindness and generosity and hospitality and everything that is good we ought to celebrate and cling to and affirm. But in order to live a faithful Christian life, we have to have in our minds and in our hearts a distinction between what is good and what is evil, and we must take a side. We must oppose what we know is evil and harmful and destructive, and we must affirm and celebrate what we know to be good according to the Word of God. Next, Paul says that we should love each other Like family, verse 10, he says, love one another with brotherly affection. We are called to love even our enemies. So in verse 9, when he says, let love be genuine, that's not limited to the love that we show to other Christians. That's the love that we are called to show to everyone. But in verse 10, he focuses on the love that we are called to show other believers, the love that we are to exercise in the church And he says that we are to love one another with brotherly affection. Love each other like family, in other words. Because we are family. God is our Father. Christ is our elder brother. If you're a believer in Christ, you're my brother or sister. And I'm yours. And we're to love each other like family, like brothers, like sisters. To care for one another. To be invested in one another's lives and well-being. Care about each other. Take care of one another. Then he says in the second part of verse 10, he says, Outdo one another in showing honor. Outdo one another in showing honor. Now, I suspect that most people in most cultures are mostly concerned with their own honor, with receiving honor, in other words, rather than showing honor to others. But that seemed to be particularly true in the Roman Empire. Remember, Paul wrote this letter to the Christians in the city of Rome, which was the capital of the Roman world, of the Roman Empire. And the Roman culture was a culture concerned with the receiving of honor. They wanted to be honored, they wanted to be celebrated, they wanted to be lifted up and exalted. That wasn't unique to them, right? That's true of all of us. But it was especially true in that culture, and we see it uh, in our culture as well. I mean, how much of social media, right, is driven by the desire for honor. I want you to honor me, I want you to like me, I want you to love me, I want you to affirm me. But Paul says we should be concerned not mainly with how much, we, how much honor we receive, but with how much honor we can show. Compete with one another, not in seeing how much honor you can receive, but how much honor you can give. Outdo one another in showing honor. How can you... Just as an example, how can you seek to show more honor to to your spouse than you expect them to show to you? How, How can you seek to show more honor to others in the church than you expect them to show to you? That's what Paul is talking about. 
labor, work, strive to show more honor than you get. And then he says, verse 11, don't be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. In other words, burn bright with zeal. Be passionate. Don't be lazy. Don't be slothful. Remember what Solomon said in Proverbs to the sluggard? In Proverbs 6, those memorable words, he says, Go to the ant, O sluggard. Consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep? A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Paul's saying, don't be a spiritual sluggard. Don't be always saying, do I have to read the Bible again today? Do I have to pray again today? Do I have to go to church again this week? Do I have to love people again today? Do I have to honor others again today? Instead, be fervent. Be zealous. Be eager. Lean into the Christian life. Cultivate a desire to read the Bible, a desire to pray, a desire to serve, a desire to worship. Don't be slothful or lazy in your zeal. Be fervent in spirit. And then he says simply, serve the Lord. Serve the Lord. Remember that you don't live to be served. You live to serve. Even Jesus himself came and said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. And so if we are followers of Christ, if we are imitators of God, we will be servants rather than those who always seek to be served. We will seek out ways not only to serve others, but ultimately to serve the Lord Himself. Not because He needs us. Paul said in that sermon on Mars Hill in Acts 17, the Lord doesn't live in temples made by human hands. He's not served by human hands as though He needed anything. He created everything. He gives life and breath to everything. In, In Him we live and move and have our being. He doesn't need us, we need Him. And yet, nonetheless, we are called to serve Him, to honor Him, to worship Him. That's what this whole chapter is about. Remember Paul said at the very beginning, in light of all the mercy that God has shown you, In Christ, despite your sin, because of the mercy He's shown you in forgiving your sin and making you righteous and giving you new life and filling you with the Holy Spirit. In light of all that, give yourself as a living sacrifice to God. That's your reasonable act of worship. And that's the same thing Paul's calling us to here. Serve the Lord. Worship the Lord. Honor the Lord with your life. Next, he calls us in verse 12 to rejoice in hope. In the Bible, typically when it talks about hope, it's not talking about a wish. It's not talking about just something that we we hope will come true, that we hope will come to pass. Biblical hope is an assurance, a certainty about something that has not yet Happened that has not yet taken place, but that we know will come to pass. 
For example, earlier in this book, in Romans chapter 8, Paul said, not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That's what we're waiting for, we're longing for. He says, for in this hope we were saved. We don't have it yet, right? But we were saved in this hope. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. In other words, we don't have it yet, but we know that it's coming. And so we patiently wait with hope, with this confidence, confident assurance of what God is going to do. We're not merely wishing that God might one day bring about a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth where we can dwell in God's kingdom and God's presence with righteousness and joy and peace. We are waiting with confident expectation for the day when God will do that and make all things new. And that's where our rejoicing comes from. Rejoicing comes from our hope, from our assurance of what God has promised. It doesn't always, or perhaps even usually, come from our circumstances. Because look at what Paul says next. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation. Now, when we hear the word tribulation, you might uh, sort of jump to the idea of the, the great tribulation, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. It's not the great tribulation, this is just normal tribulation. And normal tribulation is normal for Christians. And it's normal for anyone really living in a fallen world. Tribulation simply means suffering, hardship, difficulty. This is normal, right? Ever since the fall, there's suffering and death and disease and disasters. We make our living by the sweat of our brow, just like God told Adam. You're going to eat bread by the sweat of your brow. Life is hard and painful. And not only that, but for those of us who are Christians, Jesus warned us, if the world hated me, it's going to hate you as well. In this world, you will have trouble. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to face hardship. You're going to face trials. But be patient, Paul says. Be patient in your tribulation. Be patient in your tribulation. Be patient in your suffering because you know that this life is not all there is. If your philosophy of life is eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die, it's going to be hard to be patient in your suffering because every moment you suffer takes away more from the brevity of your life and your life is all there is, you think. But Christians know this life is not all that there is. We know... That there is life beyond the grave for those who trust in Christ, for those who belong to Christ. And Paul even says that what awaits the believer upon death, entering into the presence of Christ, is far better than anything we experience here. And then when Jesus returns and there's the new heavens and the new earth, that's even better than that. Because then we will not only be in the presence of Christ, but our bodies will be resurrected. We'll have glorified bodies and we'll live in the new heavens and the new earth in the presence of Christ forever. So we can be patient in our suffering 
Because we know that one day our suffering will come to an end. And we'll be superseded by joy that we have only been able to begin to imagine. That's why we rejoice in hope, even as we are patient in tribulation. And then he says also that we are to be constant in prayer. Be constant in prayer, or be devoted to prayer. Be constant in prayer doesn't mean that prayer is the only thing that you do. Paul did other things. He preached. He worked with his hands, making tents. He traveled. He wrote. He did all kinds of things. But he was devoted to prayer. He doesn't mean never work, right? never play a game with your kids, never do anything fun, always pray. No, he means be devoted to prayer like you are devoted to other things in your life probably. Think about the kinds of things that you're devoted to. It'll be different for all of us, but maybe you're, you're devoted to being to work on time, or you're devoted to never missing one of your kids' games, or you're devoted to, you know, watching your show every or what, whatever it is. Everybody's got something that they, they build their lives around. I'm not going to miss this. I'm not going to fail to do this. My house is always going to be clean. Every Saturday, you know, whatever it is, we've all got something. Don't let prayer be something that you are haphazard about. Sometimes I pray, sometimes I don't. Let it be one of the things that you are devoted to. One of the things that you say, I'm always going to do this. Every day. Maybe three times a day. Whatever it is. I am going to consistently pray. When I don't feel like it, I'm going to pray. When I do feel like it, I'm going to pray. I'm going to give myself regularly to prayer. That's the way we treat other things in our life. We don't always feel like doing those things that we're devoted to, that we're committed to. But we do them because we made a decision that we're going to do them. And we prioritize them. We made them important. Make prayer important like that in your life. That's what Paul is saying. Be devoted to prayer. Then, next to last, almost at the end here, verse 13... He says, contribute to the needs of the saints. Now, uh, contribute is a a good way to get at what this word means. It's a word that you may have heard before, the word koinonia. It's a word that um, you don't have to know Greek to have heard that word before. It means fellowship is usually the way that it's translated. And, And the basic idea there is to share in something with others. So contributing to the needs of the saints is one way that we share in the needs of others. But at its root, the idea is have fellowship, have a sharing with those other believers who are in need. The the saints there is not a special class of super holy people. That's all of us. Believers are holy in Christ. We are saints, every one of us. And so Paul says, share in the needs of the saints. Participate in a way in their need. And one of the ways you do that is by contributing to that need. Right? By giving to those who are in need. You, when you give to somebody who's in need, in a sense what you are doing is you are stepping into that hardship with them and you're saying, I want to bear some of this burden with you. I don't want you to have to bear this alone. I'm, I can't share it with you fully, but I can share it with you in part. 
And here's part of how I'm going to do that. It's not limited, of course, to giving to those who are in need. It can be by you know, performing acts of service or just spending time with them, listening to them, or, or whatever. All those are ways that we share in the needs of the saints. And by the way, it's not wrong to prioritize the needs of believers. Right? You prioritize the needs of your family over the needs of outsiders. Right? And it's not wrong for Christians to prioritize the needs of Christians. We, we care about the needs of everyone, but we give priority to the needs of believers. For example, Paul says in Galatians 6.10, So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we want to help all kinds of people, but we prioritize helping believers. And then finally, Paul says at the end of verse 13, Seek to show hospitality. Seek to show hospitality. Hebrews 13.2 says, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Uh, he might be thinking of Abraham when the, the three men came toward his tent and he you know, had Sarah prepare a meal for them and welcomed them and served them. Don't neglect to show hospitality. Seek to show hospitality. 1 Peter 4.9 says, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Right? Hospitality, as one definition puts it, is the generous and gracious treatment of guests. It's a welcoming of outsiders. You don't show hospitality to your immediate family because they already belong with you. Right? But when you welcome other people in, and you care for them, and you serve them, and you minister to them. That's an act of hospitality. These are the things, and others as well, but these are the things that Christians are to be known for. These are not exceptional. These are not you know, limited to monks and hermits and things like that. This is normal Christianity. This is Christian Living 101. These are the kinds of things that are to characterize our lives. And we don't have much control over whether or not the culture at large notices Christians doing these things. But if we do these things, people near to us will notice. They'll notice that you're loving, genuinely loving. They'll notice that you're generous and hospitable. They'll notice that you give to people who are in need. They'll know that you are good about honoring other people rather than just trying to be honored. They'll, they'll notice if you lean into your life as a Christian, it's not something you're reluctant about or grumbling about all the time, but that you are eager and, and willing to follow Christ and to seek to do what He commands. If we live these truths out, if we do these things, people will notice. And that's not the main reason why we do them. But we do want people to notice. Because when non-Christians see the way that Christians live, sometimes it makes them ask questions. Sometimes it makes them realize that there's something that you have that most of the people in their lives are missing. And sometimes it's the example of a simple, faithful Christian life that gets somebody's attention 
and draws them to Christ. That's our hope and our prayer. Let's pray.